The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning, can you hear me better now? All right, great. Well, um, it's great to be back. Oh, I can do this. It's great to do this. Uh, well, I'm glad to be able to um, be here in person again and to be able to uh, preach God's word and being able to actually see faces and see people. It's um, such a joy to be able to do that again. Um, today, we are starting a new series, uh, and a new series is taking us uh, through the book of 1 John. Uh, so if you are here with us for the first time, uh, we love to preach through Bibles, um, uh, through books in the Bibles, and uh, we are going to start this new series here. So if you could go with me, and um, while I'm going to introduce this series a little bit, uh, go to 1 John. Am I uh, a bit hummy? Should I, should I reduce my... Let me just try to do that here. Is it better now? Yeah, okay, great. So let's um, go to 1 John. And just to introduce our series a little bit, um, we're calling this new series Lit. Um, and the reason we're calling it Lit is because the letter of 1 John is Lit. Um, and uh, because the apostle who wrote it is Lit. And because Jesus is Lit. Um, and if that doesn't make sense to you, then let's just say... We're calling it lit because Jesus lit up the world. Um, maybe for those people who don't understand the lit word so much. Um, but in today's passage, in verse 5, um, John says, God is light. Um, and a light in Scripture often is linked to the presence of God. Um, so um, in his presence is what provides us with hope and joy. Isaiah 9, 1 to 3 captures this really well when he says, but... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Uh, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They, re they rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a famous passage talking about light and how light gives us hope and joy. It's a famous passage because it's a, it's a famous Christmas passage, in fact, and it ends at the end with saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So what that passage is talking about is Jesus, who is the Wonderful Counselor, um, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he's the one who brings the light. So we're talking about Jesus in that way. So light, and this is me just trying to introduce the series, uh, has a couple of functions, and that's why we're calling the series Lit. Um, first one is to illuminate. Uh, light illuminates. Uh, so it makes clear and visible. Much of the writing of 1 John has a focus on truth, to shine light on the good truths of basic Christianity, the good truths of the gospel, and he does that in a very loving and caring way. Secondly, light also exposes. When you can't find something, you turn on the light because it exposes the things. 
so John, the apostle, wrote this in the first century to refute false teachings. Heresies were spreading, and some claimed, or some of the heresies, some of the heresies claimed that Jesus was not really a man, but just an illusion of a man. Or that all material things, matter in itself, is evil. So that means nothing material, like a physical body or the physical world, could be good or created by someone who is good. All which, of course, are not true. Anyways, false teachers were going around and uh, through their false teaching were splitting up the churches and they were called separatists or see, they were called uh, uh, cessationists uh, in a way that they were uh, ceasing to be with the body and separating themselves uh, from the people. So John wrote to shed light and to expose false teaching, to refute those teaching in a pastoral way and remind them of the basics of the Christian faith, what a genuine Christian is, what does a genuine Christian believe, um, and how are they supposed to live out their faith? Well, the last thing that light does, it reflects. Uh, so if God is light, we are to reflect that way in the way we walk. Um, so to be lit uh, means to understand truth, uh, to expose false teaching, and to reflect God as we walk in the light. And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning what it looks like to walk in the light as we start our series. So let's dig in into our first part of uh, 1 John 1, 2, 2, 2, and let me read. That which was from the beginning, we have heard. We have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we have deceived ours, we, have, we, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would illuminate this passage for us. Uh, would you um, help us understand the truths of these few first verses in the letter of John. So, Father, we ask for your grace to hear your word, 
uh, for your word to convict our hearts and transform our lives. So, Father, would you give me grace this morning to speak boldly and clearly. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, how do we walk in the light? And there's three things we want to look at this morning. Um, in fellowship, so we walk in the light in fellowship, in repentance, and in grace. So three things, in fellowship, in repentance, and in grace. Let's look at the first one, in fellowship. How does one faithfully live out their Christian life? Because when we are saying, how do we walk in the light, um, which means, actually, how do we faithfully live out our Christian life? That's the question we are asking. And John, uh, when writing his letter to the brothers and sisters, which is most likely the people in Ephesus at that point of time, friends that in the letter he calls his beloved children, so it's people that he clearly loved and cared for. When writing to them, he uses the word fellowship four times in his opening seven verses, which is actually four times in the first five sentences he uses fellowship. It's clearly an emphasis of what he's trying to communicate. But it's not just the frequency in his opening lines that gives weight to fellowship, but what he says about it. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim so, uh, also to you, so that, so the purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The purpose of his proclamation to his beloved is that they would have fellowship with him and the other apostles and whoever is with him and already in fellowship with him. And uh, so it's including them in the fellowship that he already has. In verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. Which means that walking in the light leads to fellowship. Which means that they are synonymous to one another. You cannot walk in the light without fellowship, and you cannot have fellowship without walking in the light. Fellowship is a sign of walking in the light. Which means that living out our faith is not possible in isolation. We must live it out in fellowship. Now, fellowship seems to be a very Christianese word. Um, what does it mean? What does fellowship actually mean? Well, it means community or partnership. Um, in fact, the Greek word used uh, for fellowship in this passage is the same word that Paul uses in the book of Philippians when he says, I am so thankful for your partnership in the gospel. Which is also the word that Jesus he uses for membership. Um, covenant partnership, we say. That partnership comes from the same word as he says fellowship here. Uh, if you want to know, the word is koinonia in Greek. Um, so John here is saying something very important. To be a Christian is to be in fellowship, in community, in partnership with other Christians. To be part of a community, to belong to a local church. To be a member, to be a covenant partner. It is a basic Christian experience that reflects the God who is light. I posted an article in our group chat, in our WhatsApp group chat, and if you're here with us, either on Zoom or, or here, and you're not part of our group chat, let us know. Uh, we would glad to add you to our group chat. And I posted an article there, um, I think two weeks ago. It sometimes gets lost because of all the, you know, uh, last week here, yeah, last week I posted it, because of all of our attendance 
registration for this. Um, but in that article, um, I want to highlight three things. Uh, it was Peter Adam who wrote it for the um, Australian Gospel Coalition. And he wrote 10 reasons why you need to belong to a church. And I'm just going to highlight three things he said there. The first thing he said, because you need regular support and encouragement of Christian fellowship. Uh, the Christian life is not designed to be lived in isolation, and those who tried uh, that, are, that way are likely to crash, he says. And he quotes uh, Hebrews 10.25, where they just don't neglect the gathering. That's what he's saying. The second thing he writes about why you need to belong to a church or why you need to have fellowship is because fellowship provided by Christian friends is no substitute for belonging to a church. You choose friends because their ideas and styles are similar to your own. God puts different people in the congregation so that they can learn from each other. And he quotes Titus 2, 1 to 10. And in GCC, we have Titus 2 groups where we're having different people coming together and learning together. Because, the third reason he says, because gifts can only rightly be used by someone who is a member of a congregation. Gifts are primary for the congregation, not for the individual, and are rightly used to build up the church. The picture of a church as a body tells us that our various gifts complement each other. You don't see a foot or an eye wandering around by itself. Uh, see 1 Corinthians 12 for that. So these are just three reasons, and I urge you to go back to that article, ha have a look at it. Um, uh, if you have not seen it, it's, you can go online, Gospel Coalition Australia, 10 Reasons Why You Should Belong to a Church by Peter Adam. These are just three points of the 10 he mentioned about being part of a local church. Now, based on the emphasis of 1 John and also what, we kind of, what Peter Adam helped us to understand, we must look at fellowship in a particular way. It all says this, that there's something that fellowship does that personal devotion can't do. There's something that fellowship does that teaching alone can't do. There's something that fellowship does in the life of every believer that worship alone can't do. Which also therefore means the Christian walk is hindered in isolation. Christian maturity is stunted when you're alone. The Christian life is incomplete without fellowship. One of the ways we lack completeness without Christian fellowship is through incomplete joy. Let's read uh, verses 3 and 4 again. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, as indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the logic of his, uh, say, um, of his thought here is, we have seen and we're proclaiming things, so we have fellowship with God, and we are proclaiming this so that you can also have fellowship with us, and then together our joy is complete. Which means, my joy is incomplete without you all. Uh, it means that your joy is incomplete without me. Now perfectly, not perfectly yet, but one day perfectly, in the new heavens, 
when we will all be in perfect fellowship with one another and God, we will have perfect joy, and we experience this complete joy all the time, but until then we have glimpses and moments of that complete joy that we can experience, and these glimpses and moments of complete joy that we can experience cannot be experienced in isolation, but must be experienced in fellowship. Fellowship is a required component to experience glimpses of complete joy. Fellowship is important. John, in his opening verses, puts heavy weight on it. But let's clarify, with whom do we have fellowship? Um, obviously, with one another. That's why he says, we, if we believe these truths, then we have fellowship with one another but also with God. Verse 3 again, That which we have seen and have heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, as indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's just amazing. What he's saying, what he's claiming, is that our fellowship includes God. We're not just talking about a horizontal relationship, but a vertical one. We are, not, we, are, we are actually able to be in relationship with God Almighty, with the Creator God who existed from the beginning. He cares for us, He loves us, and He wants to be in relationship with us. We are able to know Him as He knows us. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of it or what it means to be in relationship uh, with God fully, but just sit and think for a moment that the most powerful, the most holy, the most glorious, wisest, richest, most loving being that ever existed can be in fellowship and in community with you. One implication about the way John writes about fellowship with one another and fellowship with God is this. That you can't be in community with God's people without being in community with God. But also, you can't be in community with God without being in community with God's people. They come together. And that's why when we come and take communion, we come to the Lord's table, often, and when we take the bread and wine, often we ask the question, um, if you are in good standing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you're not, make, make an amends. Um, because you can't be in good standing with God if you're not in good standing with your fellow believers in Christ. So we ask people to go and make an amends. You need to be in good standing with members of your church to be in good standing with God. Community with God means fellowship with God's people. If the horizontal relationship is fractured, so is the vertical one, and vice versa. Now the last thing comes to mind, the last question, how do we enter this fellowship? I mean, yes, fellowship is important, and fellowship is with one another, and fellowship is with God, but how do we come and enter this fellowship? How do we become part again of it? And again, and I promise for the last time, verse 3. We have many other verses to go to today. But it says, that which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So it is the proclamation and affirming these proclamations 
helps us get into fellowship and what leads to fellowship. We have fellowship around something. In the Lord of the Rings, we know the fellowship of the ring. Uh, they were gathering around the ring. They were all about the ring. The ring was their precious. What is our precious? What are we all about? What are we gathering around? What are we fellowshipping around? Well, truth. And that is a particular truth about who Jesus is, what he has done for us. And that's what verses 1 to 2 actually try to show us. Verses 1 to 2 say, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. One could think that John is German and writes very long sentences. Um, it's, it's a very long sentence, and it might be confusing if you're trying to uh, um, read it all and capture it all in one go, but let's just break it down quickly. And it's very similar to what he writes in John 1. If you look at the Gospel of John and look at the chapter 1, it's very similar to what he's trying to proclaim here. And he says this, that which was from the beginning. So whatever I'm talking about was from eternity. It was always there. That's what I'm talking about. And that thing, which was always there, we have heard it. We have seen it with our own eyes. That means it was, it was visible for us to see. That thing, which was from eternity, we looked upon. Not only that, we touched it. It had a physical body. We were able to touch it with our own hands. And that thing... It's the word of life. And what does it mean to be word of life? Well, it is the word of life that was manifest. It, it came down to earth. It, was, it manifested itself. And if you remember the words of John, the word was God, the word was with God, and the word became flesh. That's the same thing he's saying here. And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. So we are proclaiming to you something that was from the beginning that we are able to have, and that gives eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What he's seeing here, he's talking, we're talking about Jesus. He was the word that was manifest. He is the one who gives eternal life. He is the one from eternity past. He was physically around. Jesus is the word of life. He is the one who gives us eternal life. He appeared and came. And if you continue looking through the passage uh, from 1 John 1 until 2, 2, there's other truths about Jesus that we um, are able to hear. Now, John, the way he writes, he writes in a very cyclical manner. Uh, he doesn't write like Paul, where it's very clear. He makes a few points, and then he goes on to the next point. Uh, John kind of spins around and talks in circles. So there's other truths that we can learn, just taking the circles about the truth of Jesus, and that he is asking us to affirm in this, and these are that Jesus is the Son of God, he says. He also says that Jesus is the Christ. These are all important points, because these are false teachings that he was refuting, people not believing that Jesus was the Christ or that Jesus was not the Son of God. In verse 7, he also says that Jesus is his Son and Jesus who cleanses us from all sin. And in verse 2-2, Jesus is the righteous. So, the truths that we have to affirm to come into fellowship with one another and with God are all the above points that I just mentioned, are all the truths about who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, Karen Jobes, a New Testament uh, scholar, 
uh, in Westminster and who wrote a commentary on, on this passage. Uh, she writes, The truth that Jesus brings is not simply one story among many, one claim to spiritual truth, but it's revelatory of God who can be known in no other way. Incarnation creates a reality against which all other claims to truth are to be measured. John certainly emphasizes believing the truth, but truth for him goes beyond the cognitive to the way life is lived. Truth is something that should not merely have our intellectual assent, but is something that believers in Christ do. If truth is the reality that Jesus has revealed, then it demands those who believe in him to live according to that truth. So how do we live according to this truth? That's the second thing we're going to look at. So the first thing about walking in light is that we have to walk in fellowship. In fellowship means with one another, with God, in community, affirming truths that completes our joy, but it needs to be walked out, that truth. And the second point there is we walk it out in repentance. Now you think, wow, that's kind of a, a, a jump and doesn't logically flow from in-fellowship to in-repentance. But let's, let's, let's look in the text. Uh, verse 5 says, This message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light, and in him is no darkness, is language, for God is holy, and in him is no sin. Darkness is sin, and light is holiness. And light's value resides in the fact that it is completely different and darkness. The value of light is in its distinction from darkness, so there can't be any darkness where there is light. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we are lying, because if we have fellowship with God, there cannot be darkness. We are not practicing the truth, which simply stated means sin breaks our fellowship with God and sin breaks our fellowship with one another. That's what it's saying. When you sin against one person, it breaks the fellowship with them, but it also breaks the fellowship with God. For every sin is a sin against God too. And we understand that sin breaks the fellowship and relationship with God just by looking at the garden in Genesis 3. That's the problem of mankind. In the garden of Eden, mankind, Adam and Eve, were in perfect relationship with God, but sin broke that relationship, and they were cast out of Eden. They were no longer in perfect relationship with God. But if sin breaks the relationship with God, how can we be in relationship with him? Because we are all sinful. Well, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from, all, from our sin. So it means there is a way to walk in the light, there is a way to walk, to live out our Christian faith, that the blood of Jesus would clean us and cleanse us and remove sin from us. So there is a way to walk 
that allows us to be in fellowship because that way removes sin. Does it mean that it removes our ability to sin? No. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It is not that we are uh, lying, it is that we are lying to ourselves. It's not just that we are lying in general, but we are lying to ourselves if we say that we have reached a state of sinlessness. If we say we have no sin, John Stott writes, not only do we fail to live by the truth, we are void of it. For, it did not, uh, for if it did indwell us, we should inevitably be aware of our sinfulness. John's affirmation is equally applicable to us today, to those who deny the fact or guilt of sin by seeking to interpret it solely in terms of physiological, psychological, or social causes. What he's saying is this. If anyone claims that they are not a sinner, they're deceiving themselves. So that walking in the light doesn't mean that you're no longer capable of sinning. No, no, you're deceiving yourself if that's what you're claiming. Even if you're having justifications. And that's what we do. A lot of times we justify our sin. We say, oh, everyone cheats on their taxes. The fact that I'm doing doesn't make me a sinner. That's a, that's a justification based on social grounds. Um, it does make you a sinner. If you deny that you sin, then the truth is not in you. Oh, I only shouted at her because I was tired and stressed out. That doesn't make me a sinner. Everybody has a bad day. No, it does make you a sinner. If you deny that you're not a sinner, the truth is not in you. We are all sinners and we have the capacity and the nature to sin in us. The cleansing that Jesus does does not change our nature. That's not what he's saying. The walking in the way that cleanses from sin is not a way that changes our nature. And the denial of our sinfulness is just deceiving ourselves. But if it's not that, but, sorry, it's not just that. It's one more thing, and then we learn that from verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. Now that's different from verse 8. Verse 8 says, no sin in us. Verse 10 says, have not sinned. One is talking about the nature and capacity to sin, and the other one is talking about the conduct of sinning, the actual action of sinning. Many of us here, let me explain, do not deny the fact that we have sinful natures. We say, yes, I know I have the capacity to sin. That's what verse 8 talks about, our capacity, ability to sin. But verse 10 talks about is your specific conduct, you might say, yes, I have the potential to sin, but lately, I haven't sinned. And if you say that, you are a liar. That's what he's saying. That's the difference between verse 8 and verse 10. If you think you have reached a certain kind of Christian maturity, where you suddenly become free of sin, even though there is the nature and capacity to sin, but now you are transcendent beyond that in your Christian maturity, and therefore you have the capacity, but you're not actually sinning, you have flipped the switch, you are suddenly holy and pure, you are wrong. You sin because you are a sinner, and you are a sinner because you sin. It's not just the nature 
of sin which is in us, but there is the capacity, not just the capacity, but our actual sins is something that we have to bring to him as well. Verse 8 talks about the general acceptance of our sinful nature. Verse 10 talks about the admittance of specific, regular sin, practical, specific sin in our lives. Walking in the life, therefore, is understanding that you are sinful and sinning regularly. So then how do we appropriate that cleansing? How do we walk in the light that cleanses us from sin, but we affirm that we are sinful, and we affirm that we have sinful conduct in our lives? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this cleansing is appropriated for you through the confession of your sins. We have to acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our capacity and our conduct. We have to repent, and we have to repent to God and to one another. Does it mean that I don't have to change? I can just keep on sinning and keep on confessing and repenting, and if that's what you think the answer is, John is very clear in verse 1 in chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't leave room for that, for that thought. Regular confession, according to John, leads to reduction of sin. I'm telling you these things that you must confess sin because I don't want you to sin. So that means the regular confession of sin leads to reduction of sin, or the regular confession of sin grows you in holiness. When you regularly repent, you'll be more aware of your sins, and you'll be more sorrowful of your sins, and you will start hating your sin, and you will stop sinning. So what stops us from confession? Well, as I just talked about it, the denial, firstly, that we are sinful. Um, or the denial that we are currently sinning. Our self-justification, um, that we are not as bad as it may look. Our self-deceit, often, that we think we are not in sin. And our pride, that we are not willing to admit it but also fear of judgment, what people may think of us if we actually confess these sins. If they would only know the true me, they would judge me, and they will remove themselves from fellowship with me. That's why we justify ourselves all the time. Also, confession kind of makes sin real in our life, right? As soon as we articulate it and, and, and say it, we have to deal with it. And the way we deal with it instinctively first is to, well, self-advocate. And once we are aware of it, we don't confess it. Instead, we justify it or we excuse it. Um, or often what happens is we self-judge with guilt and shame but that judgment often comes from removing ourselves from fellowship. Have you noticed that a lot of times when we are in sin, or brothers and sisters sin, 
then we don't like hanging out with them because we don't want to be found out. Or we do not know how to, how to live and, and, and act and be around them when they do not know that we are in this sin and it feels very strange for us. And slowly we stop hanging out with those people and we self-judge and because of the shame and we remove ourselves from community. And oftentimes that's what happens. We slowly stop attending fellowship groups or equip groups or uh, we stop coming to church and we're removing ourselves. We're self-judging. Because we are well, finger-pointing ourselves or afraid of the finger-pointing that comes to us. So then how can we overcome this need to self-justify, to pretend that we are righteous in front of one another? Well, that's the last thing we want to look at today. We have to walk in grace. So how? How, how do we walk in grace? Firstly, we have to walk in fellowship. Second, we have to walk in repentance. And thirdly, we have to walk in grace. Let's read the last two verses. It says in chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so he's saying there is the possibility or the very likelihood that somebody does sin. So if somebody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We don't have to self-advocate because there is a perfect advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. To advocate means to mediate. Uh, have you ever mediated a fight uh, or a conflict? Have you ever tried to be the peacemaker in a situation where two parties are in conflict with one another and you kind of come in as the mediator trying to help? Uh, what's usually that happens? When you go to the angry party and you start beginning mediation process, what happens? You absorb some of the wrath, don't you? They start shouting at you, they start being angry at you, and as you're trying to calm them down, they're like, oh, how can you be on that person's side? What are you trying to say? And suddenly you are the recipient of their wrath. Any form of mediation, when you come in, you are suddenly becoming the recipient of the anger. You get an earful. And the fact that you're standing up for the guilty party usually is not received well. We have to absorb some of the anger the offended party um, has with the person who has offended them to begin with the mediation. We have to appease the person and let them let off some steam in that way. And that helps. Now, what we experience in partial, Jesus experienced completely for us. And that by a righteous judge that by somebody who was perfectly holy and perfectly correct, by an offender who is, has righteous, by an offended who has righteous anger, and it says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sin. Now that word is what Adam so beautifully described in our Good Friday uh, service. It means to absorb or appease the wrath of God. So it says here, Jesus is the propitiation for us, his blood was shed to absorb God's anger for us. He is the perfect mediator. The cross removes the hostility barrier that sin created. Because of Jesus, we can come back into fellowship with God. And it says that it's not just for us, but for the sins of the world. You're like, whoa. Does it mean that everybody is propitiated for? Does it mean that everybody sins are therefore appeased by God, or that now everyone is in fellowship with God because of Jesus? 
Remember what we said about what it takes to be in fellowship with one another in God. It requires confession of sin and confession of truth. There's something that you have to confess about who Jesus is, what he has done for you. There's an acknowledgement of those truths that are required to be in that fellowship. So in, of course, the, it just means that the potential of Christ's work on the cross is for the sins of all the world. It means it has unlimited capacity to forgive and appease. But of course it is limited to application to those who confess sin and those who confess these truths. His grace, therefore, never runs out for you who confesses truth. You can come to him over and over and over again to repent. His forgiveness is unlimited for you. But not just is it unlimited, it is unmerited. It is free. You don't have to do a work for it. Every religion in the world says, you have angered to God, or you have angered to God's. And now you must appease the gods by living in a certain way or by bringing certain elements of worship, food idols, or different things that appease the god. It is only Christianity that says you do not have to do anything to appease God. Jesus says, you have angered my father and I have appeased him by shedding my blood for you. And we must walk in that grace, confident that our repentance will be met with perfect forgiveness. You might say, would that not just make me sin more? For all we have to do is say sorry and we are forgiven knowing that repentance will be met with forgiveness, won't that just make us bigger sinners? Not at all. I think Charles Spurgeon says it best when he said, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me and sought my good. Understanding his grace will lead to repentance. Brothers and sisters, one last thing. As Christians, we are the most forgiven people, aren't we? We are the most forgiven people because the capacity of grace is unlimited for us. So as the most forgiven people, we must also be the most forgiving people. Walking in that grace doesn't mean absorbing all the grace for us, but reflecting that grace to our community. The one thing that causes my heart to judge my brothers and sisters in Christ for their sins is the thought that I am without sin. Regular confession of my sin will humble me, will humble you 
to receive one another in grace. That's how we build a culture of grace. By repenting of our sins, by being vulnerable and trusting in God's forgiveness, working through the fellowship of believers. And we can trust this because there is unlimited grace stocked up for us. To the degree that you confess, to the degree you experience grace, and to that degree you will be able to dispense it. If you don't confess sin, you can't experience grace. But if you do, you will, and therefore you will be able to dispense it. So as I ask the worship team to come up, let me sum up some thoughts of today. Because of Christ, we have received unlimited grace. To walk in the light means we walk in that grace, knowing that we are fully forgiven. And to the measure that we walk in that grace, to that measure we will walk in repentance. We will confess regularly of our sinful nature and of our sinful specific conduct. The sins of today and the sins of yesterday. And to the degree that we repent, to that degree we will walk in fellowship with God and with one another. And to that degree we will have joy. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And brothers and sisters, as my first point said, the Christian life cannot be lived without fellowship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace. Father, we ask that as we experience your grace, we'll be moved to see that you are a God who loves us. And we would come to a place that we do not want to sin against you and to our brothers. And Father, we would find the confidence that we find in your grace to then repent so that we can walk in light, in fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters here in GCC and our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Father, would you show us anew that grace this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.